Well, happy Super Bowl Sunday, church. Uh, we're super excited. See what I did there? It's a dad joke. We're super stoked that you uh, joined us to worship Jesus this morning. And we are on the cusp. We are on the precipice of the Los Angeles Rams, my LA Rams, uh, facing and defeating the Cincinnati Bengals for Super Bowl 56. So go Rams. All right, well, um, just for the record, I am not wearing Cincinnati red or orange uh, Bengal uh, Aloha shirt. This red, it's because it's a reminder. It's because I love you guys. It's Valentine's Day weekend, Valentine's Day this Monday. So all the husbands there, make sure you get your reservations in, all right? Um, but I'm rocking this red Aloha shirt. Uh, not only for uh, Valentine's Day, but also, man, I don't believe in superstition. I don't believe in good luck and karma. Like, I'm confident, even though I'm wearing red, that the Rams will win their second ever uh, Super Bowl a championship. Now, I remember the first time the Rams ever won their first Super Bowl. It was on January 30th, 2000, at the Georgia Dome where the greatest show on turf with Kurt Warner and Marshall Falk and Torrey Holt, Isaac Bruce, the LA Rams defeated the Tennessee Titans. And uh, if I could just go back and roll the tape, remember the last play, it was a back and forth game. Uh, the last with only a few seconds left, Steve McNair, the quarterback for the uh, Titans, threw the ball to wide receiver uh, Kevin Dyson and the linebacker for the Rams, uh, Mike Jones, tackled Kevin Dyson and just fell one yard short of a touchdown of the goal line. And the Rams won that game 23-16. Uh, to 16. And the feeling of elation of the first ever Super Bowl win. Now, first are important, aren't they? Remember your first kiss <laughs> since it's Valentine's Day? I remember your first car. I remember my first car. It was a 1982 Volvo 240DL with a sunroof that you roll down with a lever and you have to turn it all the way like that. I've always been like a decade behind on cars. I don't know what it is, but uh, that was my first car. Remember your first job? Or maybe uh, the first time you went to school or the first, uh, you, the first time you kissed your wife, you know, Kiss your girlfriend or boyfriend, remember where it was, remember the situation. Um, I remember the first time uh, cutting my son's hair, Judah. He had these long, robust, black, thick, coarse hair, you know, and it was just going over his eyes. And I remember cutting it and almost kind of shedding a tear. And I saved that lock. I put it in a Ziploc and we still have it now. I remember first cutting uh, Noah's hair. He wanted to get baptized, five years old. We never cut his hair, but he said, Mom, Dad, I want to cut my hair uh, because uh, when I get baptized, because I want to be new. I was like, wow, this guy understands the newness of life and baptism. Or when I cut Ezra's hair, we saved all the first time we cut the hair, we saved it and we put it in a Ziploc bag and we save it till now. But now that uh, my kids are older, they've had numerous and dozens of haircuts. It's like, you get, it's like, man, get this hair off of me. Like, I don't want it. You guys clean it up. We just throw it away in the trash. Well, you know, I remember from Luke chapter 15, we're going to go 
into a continuation of the prodigal God of compassion, I remember the first time hearing that God loves sinners. I was taking a class in Bible college called exegesis practicum, meaning you practice exegesis. You practice how to study the Bible and get the original intention. And I remember spending uh, three weeks, two weeks on this Luke 15, and it just completely changed my, my life. Like it rocked my world. I remember first coming to realization that Jesus loves sinners. Not just John 3.16, for God so loved the world, but Jesus, God the Father, He loves rebellious sinners. That His love for us is unconditional, and it just changed my world right side up. And so we're going to go through uh, Luke chapter 15. And uh, we're going to continue our mini-series on the compassionate God. So let's go ahead and read, uh, continue in verse 11. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them, younger son, said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Let me just pause there. So according to Deuteronomy 21, the eldest son received double the portion of, in, and in this case, the youngest son, he received one-third of his dad's inheritance. So remember that, just a way of reminder, that when the youngest son asks for inheritance, he basically says, Hey, Dad, I don't want you. I want your money. I don't want a relationship with you. I want your possessions. And he basically says, You're as good as dead to me because uh, just give me your money. Let's read it, verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey in a distant country, and he squandered his state with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Verse 17, but when he came to sense, remember we talked about this, uh, this is a picture of repentance. When he came to sense, he said, you know what, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. Verse 18, the second aspect of repentance here. He says, I will go up and go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. So you come to your sense, you um, make a decision. I will go do this. I will get up. Look at verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up. He came to his father. Here's a third picture of repentance that there's actually action You make the decision, now there's action. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And so last week, we really, our main point was understand the heart of God, that the heart of God is one of compassion. You see here, the father, he was pursuing, he was looking while he was still a long way off. Meaning that every day 
almost on an hourly basis, the father kept looking out. Maybe today my son will come to his sense. Maybe today my son will have a change of heart and decide to come home. Maybe today my son will repent. And while he was still a long way off, his, when his father saw him, he had compassion on him. And remember this word compassion, it's, uh, it means a deep empathy. It means to have pity. It means to, great, to have great affection for or to love someone. And um, this is not just um, a word that we use, you know. I remember I, w- I watched a, a video of this youth ministry that they put together. They interviewed people on the street and they said, hey, uh, uh, what does compassion mean to you? You know, because a lot of people get that wrong. And this one skater dude, he got interviewed. It's like, bro, like compassion, it means like, you know, to have like great, like to be stoked about something. Like for me, like I'm, I have compassion for the drums. I'm like, (laughs) he confused compassion with passion. All right. Compassion means to feel with someone. And that's what the father does. God's heart, the Father's heart for you and for me is to have this great empathy for, not to feel bad for you, but to feel bad with you. That when he saw his son uh, as, you know, Rembrandt, before he went blind, he, he, one of his final masterpieces is the return of the prodigal son. He saw his son, he embraced him, he hugged him. Remember that um, Henry Nouwen Uh, wrote a book on that and how the father's hand, his left hand was strong. It was muscular, meaning it was a fatherly hand to bring him in, to bring him in in and to, uh, there's a source of strength there. But on his right hand, it was soft and feminine and almost mother-like. And this, this dual nature of motherly and fatherly, it's consistent in Luke 15 because Um, remember that God is illustrated as a woman, right? That a woman loses her coin, searches the whole house. When she finds her coin, she throws together a party. So this idea of compassion, this is what the Father's heart for you. And why does the Father have compassion for us? It's because we are valuable to Him. You are have value to God. You have intrinsic value to God. In other words, um, people are valuable because they are valuable, not because they have talents or gifts or abilities or strengths or not how we look or um, what we have, but we have every person born and unborn, that's ever had a heartbeat, that's ever had a pulse, is valuable to God because we are made in God's image. The fingerprint or the thumbprint or the DNA, Imago Dei, of God is is in each one of us. Now, does anybody know whose signature this is? This is William Shakespeare's signature. Now, according to the great scholarly website, uh, Wikipedia, uh, it says that um, William Shakespeare is considered one of the greatest writers in the English language, but he has the most expensive signature. 
more than Abraham Lincoln's, more than John Lennon's, and more than Albert Einstein's. Now, William Shakespeare's signature, it's been verified that there are only six William, authentic William Shakespeare signatures in the whole world. So his signature has value because it has the signature of William Shakespeare. Now, I don't know about you, but my kids, everywhere we go, they lose their slippers. Like when you go to uh, the beach, they lose a slipper. There's a slipper in the car, there's a slipper in the van, there's a slipper in the backyard, there's a slipper up in the mango tree. There's slippers every. They always lose their slippers. And every time they lose it, you only get one slipper and you're going to mismatching one. So what do you do? You throw it away because it loses its value. It only comes in pairs that it's valuable. Now, what would happen if we got one of William Shakespeare's signature on that slipper? Something that's very menial and something that may not hold much value, now it becomes priceless. In the same way, listen to me, by the authority of God's word, you are valuable because God made you. You are loved with an everlasting love. God holds you value and dear. And when you go through suffering, when you go through hurt and betrayals and trials and loss, the Father has compassion on you. When you pay for the penalty of your sins, when you walk in disobedience and you suffer because of your foolishness, when I suffer because of my disobedience to God or my rebellion to God, God has compassion on me, just like the way He has compassion on His prodigal son. So let's go to the next bullet uh, this morning. Would you write this down? Understand the heart of God. Not only is a heart of compassion, but God has a heart to save, not condemn. God has a heart to save, not condemn. Remember in verse 20, it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion for him. He ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Five verbs there, or participles rather, to describe the father's compassion, that the, the, the father's heart is to save, not condemn. A little quiz time. According to Deuteronomy 31, which we learned last week, what is a good Hebrew father, kosher father, supposed to do according to the law to a rebellious son? He's supposed to bring him out, drag him into the gates of the city. And what? The son of ours, he's rebellious, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard. And what is he supposed to do? Stone him to death and judge him and condemn him. But what does the prodigal, remember prodigal means extravagant or wasteful. God is wasteful and extravagant in grace and mercy. What does the prodigal God do? He saw him, felt compassion for him. He ran towards him. He embraced him. He kissed him and he welcomed him. We all know John 3.16, but how many of us know John 3.17? John 3.17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world, to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Did you guys catch that? The purpose that God sent his son into the world is to save, not condemn. God throws a party even when just one sinner repents. The prodigal God, he welcomes his son. He didn't bring him to the city gates to condemn him and to shame him and to embarrass him and to stone him to death. He goes to him, runs after him, embraces him, has compassion on him, and, kill, and, and kisses him. God is the good shepherd. He's willing to leave the 99 to seek the one that is lost. Whereas we're all about people, we're all about numbers. We're all about bigger and greater. We're all about percentages and ratios. And, you know, we was like, well, it is what it is, right? Where, um, listen, God is not into collateral damage. God is not about percentages and ratios and for the bigger and greater. He would seek the one that was lost. God is not into collateral damage. Remember Genesis chapter 18? that God was willing to save an entire city because of 10 righteous people. If there was only 10, God would spare thousands of people for the sake of 10. And why do I say this? I say this because there's a misconception in the Old Testament that God is mean, that He kills nations, that He, he brings plagues, that He... Um, just destroys people and destroys nations, that he's this vengeful, angry God in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, he's like this nice, compassionate father. He has a son now. He has an only begotten son. Let me tell you something. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God has always been from Genesis to Revelation, from in the beginning, God. God has always been loving, uh, compassionate, everlasting in goodness and kindness and grace, slow to anger, abounding in mercies. This is God who God has always been. This is who God is. And this is who God always with me. Um, if you remember in Jonah chapter, in the book of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, Remember, uh, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of, of the Assyrian Empire, which is Israel. The Assyrians are like Israel's mortal enemies. Okay, And so God tells Jonah, hey, go to Nineveh, uh, preach in 40 days. Just say, in 40 days, the city will be overturned. 40 days, the city will be overturned. If you notice there, God doesn't even tell them, hey, if you guys repent, God loves you, has a plan for you. If you repent, then he'll spare this. None of that. He just says 40 days, the city will be overturned. And remember, uh, Jonah disobeys God. Well, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, God gently confronts Jonah. And this is the dialogue between Jonah and God. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew it, that you are a gracious 
and compassionate. There's that word, compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Why did Jonah, who was a racist, he was like a for real kind racist, not just like a made up narrative Joe Rogan kind of racist. He's like a real racist. He did not want, Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because he hated the Assyrians. He knew that God wanted to save. He says, I knew it. God, this is why I didn't want to go in the first place because you're a kind God. You're compassionate, slow to anger. You're abounding in mercies. And he says what? You're a God who concert, who relents concerning calamity. You're a God who, in Hebrew there, the word is naham. You're a God who nahams. What does it mean, naham? Naham in the Old Testament means to change your mind. In other words, God changes his mind, just like the book of Jonah. He said, 40 days, the city will be overturned. You know what? The people repented, even though I didn't say I was going to do it. But, you know, I love the people so much, made in my image. Each person is made imago Dei in my image. I knew them from the womb. They are fearfully and wonderfully made, so I'm going to spare their lives. He said, and Jonah's like, I knew you were a God who nahams. Now, this word Naham is an interesting word. Look at 1 Samuel 15.24, or 15.29 rather. It says, also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. The word there is Naham. For God is not a man that he should, what? Change his mind. If you change your mind, you become a liar. God doesn't do that. God doesn't change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, look at Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn or the Lord has made a promise and will not change his mind. The word there is Naham. So twice in the Old Testament says God doesn't change his mind. He does not lie like us, like we change our mind and we fickle back and forth. When God says it, you said it and you forget it. God says it, it's done. He does not naham. Look at Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Naham. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And what these verses are saying peppered all throughout the Old Testament is that God is not fickle. He's not wishy-washy. He's not fickle like people. He's not fair weather like all you UH fans. When UH does well, Aloha Stadium is filled up. When they don't do so good, then it's empty. Once he makes up his mind, he will do it. God keeps his promises. He does not naham. But yet in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, we see here, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented, Naham, concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and God did not do it. So we see here a tension. What seems to be like a contradiction where the Old Testament says God does not change his mind, but yet 
Here in Jonah chapter 3, it says God did change his mind. When does God change his mind? God was willing to change his mind when it came to people. When it came to people repenting of their sins, changing their hearts. You know what? I'm so sorry, Lord. God was willing to change his mind. Exodus chapter 32 verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Psalm 106 verse 45. And he remembered his covenant for their sake and he relented. Naham, according to the greatness of his love. Amos chapter 7 verse 3 and verse 6. The Lord changed his mind. This too shall not be, says the Lord God Almighty. What am I saying here? Let me ask you, was God a nasty, grumpy, mean old, mean grandpa in the Old Testament? And he decided, you know what, I just, my public relations, he decided to get a PR firm with his angels. I'm like, you know, people think I'm this mean guy, so I'll be nice in the New Testament now. Or has God always been merciful? Has God always been compassionate? Has God always been loving? Has God always been merciful? That God was willing to change his mind. He's been... He would be willing to become like man, like people, and lie and change his mind so that he could save people. So let's go to number two here, and we'll wrap this up. Uh, Number two is this, realize that ministry is birthed by compassion. And we could look at that in the life of ministry in Jesus. Ministry. Serving people, loving people, discipling people, doing church. It's birthed by compassion. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore, meaning Jesus, he saw a great crowd. And what happened? He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Did you catch that? Jesus saw the crowd. He felt compassion. Splagnizomai. Oh, his stomach hurt. It hurt him to the gut that people were, were like sheep without a shepherd. So what did Jesus decide to do? He began to teach them. You see, there's a pattern in Jesus' life where he sees a need. He's filled with compassion. And then he does ministry. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, Jesus sees the crowd, felt compassion, and he begins to pray. In Matthew chapter 14, he sees the crowd, feels compassion, then he begins to heal people. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 32, Jesus sees the crowd, feels compassion for them, and then he begins to feed them. So ministry is birthed by compassion. So uh, let me ask you a question. what word describes your what word describes the need around you or your reaction to it in other words we've all taken that drive through chinatown we've all seen the rows and rows of tents and homeless people like what word describes your re- your response to that 
Is it like apathy? Like, oh my gosh, there's absolutely nothing we can do. Is it um, like disgust? Like, oh, get away from me. I'm glad you stay on this side and I get to go back home to Hawaii Kai. Is it, are you overwhelmed by the need of the hurting and the lost around you? When you know someone is sick with cancer, like, oh, what is your response? Well, if you want to be like Jesus, your response is compassion because ministry is birthed with compassion. You know, I was going through uh, school in college. When I was going through college, I worked part-time at Bank of America in downtown L.A. on Beaudry uh, Street, right in downtown. Like we would see the Laker parades as they would have their victory bus. Anyways, in... While I was going through uh, school, I met a guy, homeless man, his name was James. And James and I beca became good friends. He would, I would give him my lunch, I would bring him snacks. Uh, he would wash my car. I don't know how he did it, there was no hose anywhere, but he ended up washing my car and he did a great job. But James, um, one time he's like, hey John, yo man, it's my birthday today. Uh, do you think, um, you know, do you think I could you, you give me a birthday present? I'm like, sure. It's like, okay, I, here's 20, I, you want 20 bucks? He goes, oh, you know what? Could I have 100? I'm like, <laughs> that dude uh, shoot his shot, right? 100 bucks? I'm like, dude, uh, I'm a starving college student. Barely making ends meet, you want 100 bucks? I'm like, I have to work 10 hours in that building for you to get there. I'm like, no. He goes, okay, could I have 50? I'm like, okay, uh, sure. So I gave him 50 bucks for his birthday. Anyways, um, I gave him his 50, I went to work, and I came back down uh, after work in downtown L.A., you know, near um, uh, Skid Row, and as we came down, he's like, in his tent, he goes, John, John, yo, man, come here, I got a birthday present for us to share. I'm like, oh, okay, and then so I opened uh, the little um, made-up tent that he had, you know, with a little tarp. And there was a prostitute, naked prostitute. And I was angry. I was ticked off. I was like, bro, here I am working in a job where I still have school, I still got work, I still have homework after this, and I give you $50. This is five hours of my life I've given so that you could just spend it on prostitutes? Like, are you kidding me? And I was angry. And then the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and I said, uh, John, this guy with $50 had been living on the street for years. If I had $50, I would have try to get a motel, turn on the AC, have a good night's sleep, have a good meal. This guy is willing to forsake and neglect and choose his physical hunger. He's willing to forsake that. He's willing to forsake comfort and shelter so that he could feed his sinful human nature. And it hit me. I was like, and I was moved with compassion that he is so enslaved by sin. He is so consumed by lust 
that his last remaining cent is not to feed his body, but to feed his sin. And when Jesus encountered people, he was moved with compassion. So church, make the things that matter to God matter to us. Let me say that again. Make the things that matter to God, make it matter to us. You know, I'm not lost to the fact that today is Super Bowl Sunday. You know, Super Bowl Sunday is probably one of the most commercialized events in the, uh, throughout the year. You know, during Super Bowl Sunday, you know how much food will be consumed? We would have consumed 8 million pounds of popcorn will be consumed during Super Bowl. 28 million pounds of potato chips will be eaten in, in Super Bowl. 53.5 million avocados will be consumed. 1 billion chicken wings will be eaten during Super Bowl. Um, on the average, 32.5 million Americans will drink beer. That's 493 Olympic-sized swimming pools will be filled with beer. That's how much it will be liquor or beer will be consumed during Super Bowl Sunday. Seven million people will not return or report to work on Monday because of Super Bowl. It's such a big party. It's a big deal to us. We plan the whole weekend around it. We'll have all this food. You know how much money is spent on Super Bowl weekend? $5.6 billion will be spent on Super Bowl-related items, merchandise. That's why I didn't get a, a Rams Aloha shirt, right? Um, 400 million people, uh, excuse me, $400 million will be added to the local economy in L.A. because of the games. You know, 35% of people will, uh, of ticket holders will write this off as a business expense. Um, Tiffany, who makes the Lombardi Trophy, they will charge $12,500. You know, it costs $2.8 million. Think about that. Two point advertisers and businesses will pay $2.8 million for a 30-second commercial during the Super Bowl game. 30 seconds, $2.8 million, just like that. That is a lot of money. That is a lot of food. Let me ask you, who won the Super Bowl five years ago? Who won four years ago? Who won three years ago? You're trying to remember, trying to Google. You cannot. Billions of dollars spent, millions of food wasted, pounds of food used, and we can't even remember who won five years ago. By the way, it was the Patriots, the Eagles, the Patriots again, the Chiefs, the Buccaneers, and the Rams this year, all right? So make the things that matter to God matter to us. And we'll close in verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. I love this. This is a very 
biblical truth. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. You notice there it says the son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. It doesn't say, you know what, he was wayward. You know what, boys will be boys. You know, uh, you know he strayed away a little bit, but he says, no, he was dead, but now he has come alive. And then the son of ours, the son of mine, let's go throw a party. Remember last week we talked about the common thread? What is the common thread in Luke chapter 15? There's three um, stories, but there's four points, right? Number one, something valuable was lost, okay? What's a valuable lost? A lost coin, a lost shepherd, a lost son. Number two, because something valuable was lost, it warranted a great search. They search. The shepherd left the 99 sheep to look for the one that was lost. The woman turns, flips her house upside down to find the one lost coin. The father looks while his son was still a long way off, pursues his son. Number three, what's the third common thing? That they had a celebration. The shepherd gathers his friends, throws a party. The woman gathers her friends, throws a party. The father gathers the neighborhood, kills a fattened calf, throws a party. And what's the fourth common thing? That there's a moral story. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, right? There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. But here in the prodigal son, there is no conclusion. There is no moral of the story. Why? Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. What was the older son doing in the field? He was probably working, right? And look at verse 27. He said to him, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, and he was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. Yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Verse 30, But when the son of yours, not even my, this brother of mine, but when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice, for this, brother of your, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Do you remember the context of this? The context was what? The Pharisees who've always been in, right? They accuse Jesus of welcoming sinners. They, they were, there's a theme here in the Gospel of Luke that those who are in are really out, but those who are out are actually in. There's this motif. The, 
the older son who was always in, in the father's house. He was out on the field, but he was unwilling to go in. Even though he was in, he was really out. The younger son, he was out to a distant country outside, but he was those who are, but he came inside. So let me wrap this up. Which rebellious son are you this morning? Are you the rebellious son that disobeyed your father, that you lived your own life, that you lived your best life now, that you just kind of wandered and squandered and did your own thing, walked away from God, walked away from church, walked away from your calling? God is a compassionate God. Or are you the lost and rebellious older son? Do you despise that God loves sinners? How do you feel when um, there's someone at church who goes into church that doesn't look like you, doesn't dress like you, doesn't dress like you? What's your reaction if there's an atheist that goes to church? a homosexual atheist that goes to church? What's your reaction? What's your response? Are you unwilling to go in? Or would you have compassion like God? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is alive. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that it confronts us and it brings about change. So, Lord, I pray right now that as your word has been deposited, that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to each one of us Lord, I pray right now for those, the prodigal sons, Lord, those who wandered and strayed and, and um, have walked away, that, Lord, that you bring them back home, that they would come to their sense and turn to you, Jesus. Lord, I pray, God, for those of us who've been, quote-unquote, we've been, been faithful, that we've been moral and that we've been good and we've always gone to church, that we always try to read our Bibles, Lord, I pray, God, that we would be in in what you're doing, that you are a God who welcomes, who loves sinners. So, Father, I pray that we'd be transformed by the power of your word and through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys. Thanks again for joining us for Super Bowl Sunday. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. We love you guys. Have an amazing week. Go Rams.